you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it in your pew Bible, I believe, on page 410. Psalm 42, or in your pew Bible on page 410. As you're turning there, let me say a word of thanks once again for inviting me back. It's always a joy to be invited once, but if you're invited more than once, it's especially a joy. So thank you for the privilege to be back with you this morning. Psalm 42, hear the word of God. As a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul within me. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. He's my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love. And at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to you this morning that this psalm gives us two very precise points. Number one, in this life there is great suffering and pain. And number two, in this life there is hope in God. So Father, we ask this morning that by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would invade this room 
with Your presence, that You would open up our minds and our hearts and help us to understand that though we suffer in this life, there is hope. And Father, I pray that at the end of this sermon that every single person would leave with this song in their ears, hope in God. So God, give me the grace to give Your people Your Word and give Your people the grace to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To many of us, perhaps the concept of hope seems rather hopeless. Recent expressions of evil may even reinforce that hopelessness. For example, violence, poverty, a bad economy, injustice, and numerous other challenges seem to challenge the notion of hope. Recently, in Washington, D.C., the magazine known as The Atlantic held a summit in which they focused on the issue of race and justice. And during that summit, they featured a Christian who made the case for hope and a non-Christian who argued against hope. In spite of the fact that this Christian made a very articulate and biblical case for hope, and more precisely, for hope in the Gospel in the midst of a fallen world, the non-Christian argued that he does not live his life by the paradigm of hope. In fact, he argued that the chaos in the world speaks against any notions of hope. And you see things like the Paris terrorist attack and the violence erupting throughout your own state. Maybe you agree that chaos rules and reigns and hopelessness is not, or rather hope is not a reality. And yet, Psalm 42 looks us right in the face this morning. It looks at our fallen world and it says that we should hope in God. In the midst of the seemingly hopelessness, the psalmist exhorts us to hope in God. The Christian Gospel specifically says we hope in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 42, along with Psalm 43, offers us hope. We can't say for certain what the psalmist's context was, but what we can say is, is that he is in a state of despair. He's in agony. He suffers. And as he is suffering, as his enemies taunt him, as he wrestles with the reality of hopelessness, he exhorts us this morning, to hope in God. There are two truths I want us to think about today from this text. And I've already stated them more than once. Number one, there is suffering in this life. You do not have the promise from God 
that you will live throughout your life without suffering and without pain. There is suffering in this life. But number two, there is hope in God. First notice, there's suffering in this life. Notice the the tone of the text. Psalm 42, verse 1. You might be misled to think that the psalmist is not in despair. Because in verse 1 he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. might not seem as though he's suffering. Because he compares himself to a deer who aches for water, so his soul aches for God. But we'll see in a moment. The reason why his soul aches for God is because he's distant from God. It's because he's suffering exile. He's not inside of his land. He's away from the people of God. He's away from the house of God. And his enemies are oppressing him. And therefore he is aching in his bones to be close to God again. Be close to God's people again. I'm not a hunter. I've never hunted in my life. For many reasons. One, I'm afraid of guns and I'm clumsy. So those two things don't go together. But some of you perhaps deer hunt. I can speak as a runner who exercises regularly and after a long hour or more of exercise, I ache, I long, I pant for water. Why? I'm physically weak. I'm physically In despair, I need hydration. The psalmist is aching for God and compares that aching as a deer who pants and longs for water. But notice verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. It thirsts for the living God. Why does it thirst for God? He tells us in the next part of verse 2 when he asks this question. When shall I come and appear before God? That's very important for this psalm. You've got to remember that in the Old Testament, being in the presence of God was often associated with being in the land that God promised His people and being at the house of God with God's people. But evidently, the psalmist is in a distant land He's not at the house of God. In fact, he tells us in a moment, he's not. And he's asking the question, when will I once again go to God's house with God's people and appear before God? His soul is aching to get there. Continues in verse 3. As he further describes the agony of his despair, the agony of his suffering, and he personifies his suffering by saying that his tears are his food day and night, and his tears taunt him. Verse 3. Notice the tone of the text. Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. I love it. I love the Psalms. They're poetic. And they fight, don't they? They're honest. They're unlike most Christians. When we suffer, we don't, Tell people we suffer. We walk around with a smile on our face and we fake it. That's not the Psalms. Psalms cry out in agony. They lament. This is a lament psalm. 
And the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. He's suggesting in poetic way that he is in agony, he is in grief. Have you been there? Grief consumes you so much that the last thing you think about is eating food. The last thing you think about is sleep. The last thing you think about is satisfying your physical appetites because you're in so much despair and your soul is aching. All you can do is grieve. About five years ago, the Lord brought an unusual season of suffering into my life. And the Lord brought me to the place in my life wherein my tears were my food day and night. That's what the psalmist says. But added to that, he also says that his tears question is God. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? He's personifying his suffering, isn't he? Tears don't talk. But his tears take on human attributes. They take on speech. And the psalmist's suffering is a reminder to him that something's not right. And the tears say to him, where's your God? He continues. In verse 4, he begins to meditate on his glorious past. In verse 4, he begins to think, of, begins to think about the good old days when things were going well. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul within me. And here's what he remembers. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here's what he remembers. He remembers those glorious days when he led the people of God to the house of God to worship. He remembers those praises of celebration. He remembers those times of worship with God's people in God's land. But now he's distant. And he's suffering. Those times in our lives when we get sick and we reflect back to the times in our lives when we were well. Or when we lose a loved one. We lose a child. We think back to those days when we laughed with that child and that loved one. And those memories can, oh yes, bring us joy, but sometimes those memories can bring us pain because all we have is the memory. The psalmist is, is in agony. And what aggravates his grief is the fact that there was a time in his life when things were not like this. Continues in verses 6 and 7. As he begins to further describe his grief, and he talks about his suffering as God's waves and waterfalls rushing upon his life. Verse 6, my soul, verse 6, is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan. I remember you from Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Now here, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and all of your breakers and all of your waves have rolled over me. 
or he's reflecting upon his glorious past. But he can't escape his tumultuous present. Now this phrase, verse 7, waterfalls and breakers, or waterfalls and waves, occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament. Particularly in Psalm 88, verse 8, the psalmist states that God's wrath lies heavy upon him and that God overwhelms him with all of his waves. We further see this language in Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, when God commanded Jonah to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And Jonah disobeyed, and so God swallowed him up in the belly of a big fish, and God judged him. And Jonah cries out from the belly of that fish, and he says that all of the Lord's waves have rushed over him. So the psalmist could be associating his suffering with God's judgment. We don't know that exactly, but at the very least we know this. The suffering comes to him from God's hand through his enemies. Did you notice that in the text? Notice he says in verse 8, or rather verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Further, verse 7, All of your breakers and all of your waves had gone over me. So notice the irony of the text. I'm suffering, God. I'm crying out in despair. My enemies are against me. And God, you're doing this to me. Let me insert for a moment an application. I have six I'll give you in a moment. But please don't forget this when you suffer. Your God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Nothing catches your God by surprise. He never wakes up and reads the headlines after they happen. He governs, guides, upholds, directs, and sustains the entire universe for His glory and for our good. That is your God. And anything that happens to us in this life cannot happen unless God, by His grace, lets it happen. You understand that? Just read the book of Job, right? The devil's not in control of that situation. God determined the boundaries of the devil. So that when you get to the end of Job in chapter 42... The narrator says God did that to Job. But he used the devil, didn't he? And the psalmist reminds us of something very important. Suffering is evil. Can be evil. Injustice is evil. The enemy's attacking us. That's evil. But our great God is good. And he uses all things for His glory and our good. And God Himself is never affected by evil. The psalmist continues. Verse 9, he's going to now specifically mention his enemies. And he says in verse 9, I would say to God, my rock. Notice this question, why have you forgotten me? Listen to that. 
I will say to God, my rock, God, you're my rock. Why have you forgotten me? I hope you pray like that. You pray like that? When I pray, I bear my soul to the Lord. I don't try to keep secrets from Him. And when I feel as though He has forgotten me, I ask Him, Lord, why have you forgotten me? And then I repent. When I feel as though He has forgotten me, I tell Him I feel as though He has forgotten me, then I repent. The psalmist is moved because of his despair to cry out to the Lord and to make himself vulnerable before the Lord. Why have you forgotten me? Maybe you feel like God's forgotten you this morning. I would encourage you that you ought to tell God that. If I could quote Veggie Tales, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. He could handle your accusations. And then as soon as you accuse, you repent. And ask the God to help you to hope. That's what the psalmist is going to show us in a moment, but now he's crying out and he's saying, God, you're my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you abandoned me? Why am I in exile? Or maybe you're thinking, why have I lost my job? Why does my kids always get sick? Why do I have cancer? Why can't I find a spouse? Why did I funk that class? Notice what he says in verse 9 about his enemies. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But there be no mistake about it. There are real physical threats, real people who are serving as the agents through whom the psalmist suffers. Absolutely, the devil was a real agent in Job's suffering. And yet, on the other hand, the psalmist acknowledges that the reason why his enemies can do what they do is because his great God is letting them do that, which explains the question, why have you forgotten me, right? I love verse 10. It describes his suffering at the hands of his enemies as a deadly wound, verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones. My adversaries taunt me. They mock him. And notice precisely what they say. They mock him by saying, where is your God? If your God is so great, why are we defeating you? If your God is so big, why doesn't He help you? Think for a moment with me about the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross and save yourself. If He speaks for God, the accuser said, let's see if His God will come and save Him. That's what your enemies do. They not only attack you, when you suffer. But they also attack your great God. Remember in Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus was heading toward Jerusalem or Damascus to bring Christians bound to Jerusalem for a trial. And when Jesus invaded Paul's life and saved him, he asked Paul this question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, not the church. 
He said, me. Your enemies will attack you, absolutely. But their attack of you when you suffer is an attack of your great God. See, in the first few verses, the psalmist is in despair. He's acknowledging that there's suffering in this life. This is why it makes absolutely no sense for anybody to believe in the health, wealth, gospel. This gospel that says God wants everybody to be healthy and happy and wealthy, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus Himself, the Son of God and God in flesh, was not always healthy and certainly wasn't wealthy. It's a good reminder, isn't it? That the people of God are sometimes, are sometimes the ones who suffer the most. Just ask those Christians when you get to heaven who had their heads chopped off. Because they followed Jesus. So there's great suffering in this world. And God does not promise any Christian a life without pain. In fact, it's just the opposite. In this world, there will be trouble. But be of good cheer, Jesus has overcome the world. But number two, there's great hope in God. Suffering is not the end of the story. It's part of the story. Hope is the end of the story. There's great hope. Notice, for example, verses 5 and 7 and 11. Twice he says, hope in God. And I think he alludes to it a third time. Verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, I have a question. I love to read the Bible and ask it questions. And the Bible will talk back to you, by the way. If you just listen carefully enough. Makes no sense to me for the psalmist to say, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why does the psalmist begin to question himself about why he is in despair? He's already told us why. He's in despair because of his suffering. But the question is really rhetorical, isn't it? He's not asking, Why are you suffering? with the intent of getting the answer to something that he doesn't know. He's asking himself in the midst of his suffering, why are you suffering in light of the fact that God is his rock? Or he's asking himself, why are you, why are you in despair in light of the fact that while he suffers, God is his rock? So in other words, why are you downcast, O my soul, since in fact, since in fact God is my rock, since in fact God is my salvation, why are you downcast? I hope you're thinking this. Can you show me that from the text? I think I can, or I wouldn't have asked the question, right? Verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here it is. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Verse 7, or actually verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? So let's think about this for a moment. The two commands I want us to think about, verse 5, verse 11, hope in God. 
What is hope? Hope is not defined this way in the Bible. I hope the University of Kentucky Wildcats will win the national championship this year. Amen. 40-0. I can feel it. But they might not win. That's not hope. Hope in the Bible is defined this way. It's a confident expectation, a confident certainty that God will in fact do what God has promised. I described this hope weeks ago now when I preached from Romans 5. But hope is never uncertainty in the Bible. It is always certainty because it's rooted in God and His promises. And this hope shows itself by means of faithful obedience to God. So in the Old Testament, for example, hope is defined as the certainty that God will do for Abraham, through Abraham, and for the world everything that God promised to do in Genesis chapter 12. And faith in that reality showed itself by means of obedience. In the New Testament, it's defined more precisely. Hope is the accomplishment, the belief in the accomplishment that God has fulfilled everything He promised to Abraham, everything He promised through Abraham for the world, through Jesus Christ, His Son, who is the seed of Abraham. Hope in the New Testament is rooted firmly in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our expression of faith and trust in that hope is obedience to Jesus until we die. Let me say it again in case you've missed it. Hope is a confident expectation that God will do and has done in Christ Jesus what He has promised to do. There are numerous examples that I could give you, but let me just give you one from Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 21, the Apostle Paul puts forward Abraham as the example of faith. And he makes a series of statements about Abraham that, that suggest that Abraham, although he was old, hoped and trusted and the promises of God. One of those promises being that God would give him a descendant. And Paul further continues in Romans 4, 13 and following to say that Abraham, although he failed, absolutely, although he was not perfect, he was unwavering in that hope. That is, he persevered in that hope. Believing, looking forward to what God has done, had promised to do for him and his offspring. And then Paul says this in 4, 24 and 25 of Romans. He says, Jesus Christ has in fact accomplished that. So we look back on what Jesus has done for us. Well, back to Psalm 42, verses 5 and 11. The psalmist says, hope in God twice. Well, here's a question for us to think about as we bring it to a close. Why? Why should I hope in God when every single time I turn the news on, there's some form of injustice? A terrorist attack in Paris. 
violence that is nonsensical? Why should we hope in God? Moreover, why does the psalmist hope in God? When in fact he's already expressed that he is distant from his people, he is isolated from the house of God, he is not leading the people of God, and his enemies attack him. Why hope in God? He tells us, both in verse 5 and in verse 11. Notice verse 5. Let's read the first part and then we'll read all the way down to the end. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Here's the reason. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Verse 11, the same thing. Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Question, why should Christians hope in God? Because God is in the salvation business, folks. He's our great Savior. We should hope in God because He has already proven Himself to be a Savior. And He will save us from our enemies and from His wrath when Jesus returns. In the psalmist's day, he, he believed by faith that just as God delivered Israel out of Egypt, so also God would deliver him from His enemies. And He will therefore praise Him because of this deliverance. There's an important word here that I want us to think about for a moment. You come down to verse, verse 7. Or verse 8, the psalmist mentions God's steadfast love. You see that word in verse 8? I'm reading from the, NA, from, the N, or from the ESV. The ESV might say loving kindness. Mine says steadfast love. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. That's a clue to why he's identified, the psalmist identifies the Lord as Savior in verse 5 and as Savior in verse 11. Two statements about God being the Savior surround this statement in the middle about God's loving kindness. Let's ask ourselves why for a moment. I think an answer is because often in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, God's loving kindness or His steadfast love, they appear in contexts where God reveals Himself as Savior. So God's steadfast love or His loving kindness refers specifically in Psalm 42 and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament to God's saving mercy. I'll give you a few examples. Just hear these verses. Psalm 57, verse 3. God will send from heaven and He will save me. He will put to shame Him who tramples on me. God will send out, here's the word, or the phrase, His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Did you notice that? God will save me. He will send salvation from heaven. And then this is followed by the statement, He will send His steadfast love. To talk about God's steadfast love in this psalm is to talk about God's salvation. Another example. Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2. God has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now listen to this. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Did you hear that? 
God's steadfast love is associated with God manifesting His salvation throughout the ends of the earth. It's reason for hope, isn't it? You want more? Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Now listen to verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. To talk about redemption is another way to talk about salvation. If you read, for example, Exodus 15, after God delivered Israel out of slavery, Israel praised the Lord in Exodus 15 for redeeming her out of slavery. So once again, we have God's steadfast love in association with God's saving mercy. Thus, in the midst of his despair, the psalmist in Psalm 42, verse 5 and verse 11, urges himself to hope in God because God is in the business of saving his people. Understand that this morning. I believe in a real devil, a personal devil. But I also believe that the devil is defeated in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And I also believe the devil has been disarmed via the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And I also believe that Jesus has saved His people from their sins and will save His people from the devil and from all of our enemies when He comes back. Just read Revelation. Who is it who is thrown into the lake of fire? The devil. The beast false prophet, and those who are not on the side of King Jesus. Because as David says in 2 Samuel 2.23, God is our rock, He's our refuge, our shield and the horn of our salvation, our stronghold, and our Savior. Here's a question for you, and I have six applications to answer this question. How do Christians hope in God? Psalm 42 was not written by a Christian, right? Part of the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but I'm not Jewish. I'm Eastern Kentuckian. That's where I'm from. I'm a Christian. I'm a Gentile. And so are all of us in here who are non-Jews. We're Gentiles and we're Christians if we're trusting in Christ. So then the question we must always ask ourselves about the Old Testament is this. How does the Old Testament apply to Christians? And how does it point to Jesus Christ? And more specifically, how does the hope that the psalmist urges his own soul to have point us to Jesus? I think the answer is this. In the Old Testament, as I've already said, they looked forward with expectation and with confidence to what God would do for them. And Christians look back with confident belief in that God has done it in Jesus Christ. And we look forward with faith that Jesus will come back and bring all things to pass for which He died. So our hope is rooted in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It is not enough for you and me to tell people we hope in God today. We've got to tell people we hope in Jesus, right? God talk doesn't cut it anymore, folks. ISIS has a God. Right? Right? 
Not saying he's the true God, but he is their God. Hindus have gods. Mormons have a God. We must be explicit and say that our hope is in God who's manifested himself in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus who is God, the second person of the Trinity, right? So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, for example. Therefore, 5.1, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The text goes on to say in verses 3, 4, and 5, that we boast in our suffering. Because our suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance strengthens hope. Another text for you all to read this afternoon would be Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and following to support this very point. In Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 39, Paul talks about our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory which is about to be revealed in us. And he goes on to say that the current creation was subjected in futility, but God submitted it, submitted it in hope. And the hope is Jesus will liberate this fallen creation. Think about that. There will be a day when the funeral parlors will be put out of business. No more death, right? There will be a day when all the prisons will be empty because there will be a new heavens and a new earth. No more sin when Jesus comes back. When Jesus liberates the world, when he comes back again and wraps it all up and brings it all to pass, the hope would, be, would not be by faith, it would be by sight. There is a day for Christians. There are no more chemotherapy treatments, right? I hate death. I don't rejoice when I'm asked to preach funerals. That's a reminder of what happened in the garden, isn't it? Every time you go to a funeral, that's a reminder that death has entered the world because of sin. But there will be a day when there will be no more caskets dropped into that ground and no more deaths to cancer because Jesus Christ is our hope and he's taken away the sting of death. The reasons to be hopeful today. So let me close with six applications very quickly. Six applications. Number one, suffering is one mark of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that because he suffered, we can be certain that we too will suffer. If you look at church history, sometimes Christians suffered the most in certain societies. Maybe this morning you're suffering as a Christian. Maybe because you identify with Jesus at your university or in your home, or at your job, maybe your faith serves as a means by which you're ostracized by people in your particular space. But I urge you this morning to hope in God through Christ. Don't let go of Jesus. No matter how much we suffer for Jesus, let's ask God by His grace to hold on to us and to help us hold on to Jesus, right? And I don't want to diminish anybody's suffering today. Because suffering is real. 
And we all suffer in different ways. We don't all suffer in the same same way. And we have different distributions of suffering that come down to us from God. But no matter how severe or how small your suffering might be, it is your suffering and it's therefore real. And if you're suffering for your faith in Jesus, the Word of God is hope in God and hold on to Christ. Let Him go. Because a mark of the Christian life is suffering. Thank God it's not the only mark. But it's not a strange thing, 1 Peter 4, 12 says. It's not a strange thing when you suffer for Christ. It's normal. Now, I'm not saying let's all go out today and find some people to make us suffer. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying to you is, is that when your social situation does not embrace your Christianity, don't be surprised. Keep hoping in God. Second, Christians will not escape suffering in this life. This is one of the errors, one of the gross errors of the health wealth gospel. Christians will not, no matter how much you pray, how much you read your Bible, how many verses you memorize, no matter how faithful you are, you will not escape suffering. In fact, your faithfulness can get you in trouble, can it? ask Jesus. But our suffering will end when Jesus Christ returns. Therefore, we should rejoice now as we faithfully serve Jesus because we will rejoice when we receive the goal of our faith, namely the salvation of our souls. Go home and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-10. through 10. Peter says, your current suffering should serve as a means by which you have future joy because God in Christ has saved you and will come back and save you from your enemies. Third, I want to be tender here when I say this because some of you might not be here theologically. I hope you are, but maybe you're not, so I want to be tender when I say this. God will bring suffering into our lives to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our joy, and to serve as a means by which we will persevere until the end and be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10, The Apostle Paul has this thorn in his flesh. Frankly, I think this, the thorn in the flesh is persecution for his faith. Because the text goes on to talk about the insults and the revilements and all these persecutions he experienced. And in chapters 9 and 10, or rather chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians, emphasize the various sufferings that Paul experience because of his faith in Jesus. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-10, through 10, that he asked the Lord Jesus three times to take the thorn away from him. And each time, Jesus said, no, Paul. And Paul said, okay. I will boast in my weaknesses. And here's why. So that the power of Christ may be manifest through me. And the reason why he had the weaknesses, Paul said, It's because God gave them to him to keep him from exalting himself because of these great revelations that he saw. I think 1 Peter 1, verses 3-10 through makes the same point, that God will bring suffering into our lives because he loves us. Because he loves us. So absolutely, if you're suffering today, ask God to take that suffering away from you. 
and make the appropriate decisions in your life to escape suffering. Don't make irresponsible decisions. But on the other hand, if God chooses not to remove the suffering away from you, ask God to use it to make you love Jesus more and to strengthen your hope. Fourth, when you feel hopeless, and frankly, sometimes I do feel hopeless, and sometimes I feel like giving up, but when you feel that way, imitate the psalmist in Psalm 42 and confess your hopelessness to God, and then preach to yourselves. I didn't talk about this a lot, but did you notice in Psalm 42, verse 5 and verse 11, the psalmist begins to preach to himself? Every single Christian is a preacher. No, not everybody's called to be a pastor. But every Christian is a preacher. And your number one audience to whom you preach every day should be your own soul. Every day. When you doubt your faith, when you feel hopeless, when you feel like walking away from Jesus, what you should do is preach to yourselves. Mind yourselves of the gospel. Again, if I could go back for a moment to five years ago in my life, the Lord brought an unusual season of suffering onto my life, one thing after the other, physical, plant, uh, physical pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering, and all I could do literally was stay up and cry out to God. That's all I could do. And then remind myself of the gospel. My wife reminded me of the gospel. My church reminded me of the gospel. So what you should do, brothers and sisters, whether you're a new believer or an old believer, you should remind yourselves of the truths of the gospel regularly, and you should preach to your souls. Whenever you're tempted, tempted to give in to the devil, you should preach to yourselves the gospel. If you're depressed, Christians get depressed, folks. If you don't believe that, I don't know what world you're living in. I know people who love Jesus who get depressed. If you're depressed, certainly, the Lord provides all sorts of means by which to help you. But I would say to you that the fundamental weapon that you have to fight against the depression and the despair that could come upon you is reminding yourself of the Gospel. I'm not denying that the Lord doesn't use counselors. He does use counselors. He does use people to help us think through why we're anxious. But you should preach the gospel to yourselves. Remind yourselves of hope in God. Doubt God loves you this morning? Preach to yourselves. John 3.16 Romans 5.8 God shows His love to the world by killing His Son. Preach your, to yourselves that. Maybe you're in college and you get lonely. Frankly, look, I love education, but the worst four years of my life were college. And I taught at a university for five years. I ta I've taught at a seminary for three. I hope I die teaching. I love teaching at a, at a seminary. I love it. I love teaching undergraduates. But the reality is, those were the worst four years of my life because I was lonely. Part of the problem was I was socially awkward. And I never left my room. I was lonely. Well, if you're lonely, remind yourselves what a friend you have in Jesus, right? Fifth application. Two more and I'm finished. 
Your hope in Jesus should move you to view everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. Everything. How we view other people. How we interpret the world in which we live. How we respond to controversy. How we react to cultural issues that divide people. Everything that happens in this world, we should view that through the lens of our hope in Jesus so that our Jesus card trumps every other card that we might have. And that means you've got to do a lot of fighting for hope. Right? Hope is a gift from God. But hope is something for which you must fight. And one way you fight against hope is you pray. You read Scripture. You get involved in the life of the local church. You don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You serve in the body. and You surround yourselves with brothers and sisters that can help you live out the gospel. Some way you fight for hope. If you have people who are hopeless speaking into your ear all the time, you're going to be hopeless, right? And finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you don't have hope. But the good news for you today is that you can have hope. You could have the hope in knowing that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. You can have the hope in knowing that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead for your salvation. If you repent and believe, if you turn away from your sin, you throw yourselves on the mercy of God and you believe by faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you follow Jesus until you die, you have the promise of eternal life today. So brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged. Hope in God. And more specifically, hope in Christ, who is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the power of the gospel. We pray that you would move in our hearts this morning. embrace this hope that you give to us as a gift and we pray for those who feel hopeless today lord may we be confident that you are a great god so god pull us out of any pit of despair today by means of this great hope we pray in jesus name amen